Very good. Yes, amen. What a great song. Um, each verse follows the next story in that, chap- in that chapter in Luke 15. And in six years, when we get there, we'll, we'll study it. <laughs> no, we'll hopefully be there sooner than later. Um, I want to say thank you to all of you children for uh, working so hard on that song for a long time, and we have benefited from your hard work to be blessed by those really great lyrics and your voices, so thank you for, for doing that for us. Uh, what a blessing. Well, that is actually a great uh, connection as well to our text this morning, which is a story of transformation. It is one who was desperately lost in a hopeless condition, and Christ sought him out and found him. And the story in Luke chapter 8. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And, I mean, you can't plan these things. But two days, Halloween, and we've got the most, I mean, if there were a text, here's like the ultimate, like, demon possession uh, story in the Bible, and uh, it just so happens this is what we get to study this week and have a right perspective on, on these things. Um, so follow along as I read Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26, and we'll read down to verse 39. Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home 
and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the living God. Dissociative identity disorder, or did, uh, was formerly known as multiple personality disorder, or split personality disorder, or dissociative personality disorder, uh, and it is in what's called the DSM-5, the Diagnose, Diagnosis Statistical Manual, um, that uh, psychologists and psychotherapists use to look at behavior patterns and categorize them. It remains a controversial diagnosis, and really it's just, they're categorizing people who, who manifest what appear to be various uh, personalities, um, more than one, but sometimes more than even that, more than two, uh, multiple, and they're trying to categorize this and this alteration in a person's behavior that is very dramatic and accompanied sometimes with memory gaps, and so they're trying to put these into categories. Well, well, the world is constantly seeking to explain the world around them in, in unexplainable things in oftentimes a very materialistic way. We as Christians have a worldview that can encompass more than just what's happening in the material world. Now, to be sure, we understand that the body is uh, a complex unity of, of body and soul. And these, these function together and, and are unified. And yet we also understand that there's more than just the material universe out there. There's a, a, a spiritual world around us. And I think, and of course, I'm being very broad brushstroke, but um, if this man in Luke 8 had been alive today, I think he would have been diagnosed with did, <laughs> with disassociative identity disorder. And yet, it would be a misdiagnosis. I guess you could say on the surface that yes, he is manifesting various personalities, um, yet the explanation for why that is happening is supernatural. Really, we have what's one of the worst case scenarios of demon possession recorded anywhere in our passage. This man has another form of did, demonic invasion disorder. <laughs> that is what he has. And here he is at just the lowest point that a human being could be at, possessed by these demons. When we speak of demon possession or being demonized, here's what we mean. One writer puts it like this, quote, the invasion of a victim's body by a demon or demons in which the demon exercises living and dominant control over the victim, which the victim cannot successfully resist. Now, of course, when we see erratic behavior, we don't always just go to demon possession, is what I was trying to say before, but we at least have a category for things that are hard to explain, that there are real demons in the world who prey upon people and seek to keep them from faith in Christ. Now, if we had more time, we could develop this uh, theology of demons and angels, and we would understand that a Christian, a true born-again Christian with the Spirit of God dwelling within them, cannot be demon-possessed. Uh, there are things that, uh, 
there might be demonic persecution, we might say. Paul has a thorn in in his flesh, whether that's a person or a physical affliction um, is up for debate, but it, it was a messenger of Satan, he says. So there's certainly opposition that can be faced, Uh, but not uh, a possession like this. That is something that we could make a very clear case for throughout the scriptures. Nor in the New Testament is there instruction in the epistles for dealing with demons, really, or driving demons out. It is described, but there's no prescription for what to do. Uh, And so there's really not uh, a a big focus on that as in, in this age as to what ought to be done. But we see there's almost a changing of the ages with Christ's coming, his first coming. And so you have this massive uptick in demonic activity during the life of Jesus. It's almost like the phenomenon when you turn on the lights in your garage maybe and all these cockroaches go <laughs> and they start going away. It's like Jesus is the light and he's, he's present now on the earth and all these de- demons start to manifest and, and they were there, but they're just really on high alert and they're, they're working. Here we see that this man's life is really the backdrop for yet another demonstration of the authority of Jesus. It is to show us that Jesus rules not over the material world, but over the supernatural immaterial world. We see here as well, Jesus' power over evil. His power over evil. We mentioned a couple weeks ago that we are in a section where Luke is telling us of the authority of Jesus and he's doing it in four major ways. We see Jesus' authority over uh, disaster as they are on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, and there's a massive storm that Jesus calms with his word, his authority over disaster. We see now his authority over demons, the mnemonic realm in this story, and then next week we'll see his authority over disease and death as he heals someone who had a long-term disease, and then he bring someone back from the dead, all in this one moment. And so we see this is Luke's larger purpose to show us the authority of Jesus. And so we zoom in on this particular manifestation over demons and really his authority over, over the evil that demons perpetuate. Uh, Daryl Bach writes this, summarizing these miracles, and he says, this series of miracles shows God's reclamation of people through the demonstration of Jesus' unique authority. So what we want to do as we look at this story is see three scenes which demonstrate the authority of Jesus and serve as the outline of every conversion story. Three scenes which demonstrate the authority of Jesus and serve as the outline of every conversion story. We want to see first a tragic man and then secondly a transformed man and then third a testifying man. A tragic man a transformed man, and a testifying man. Let's first consider the story of a tragic man. Look at verse 26. And then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So remember, they had gotten in a boat. They had sailed across, very smooth sailing. They didn't even have to put in oars. They're sailing across, but then a massive storm comes upon the Lake of Galilee, and they are terrified. These are professional fishermen, many of them, and they are in this storm of a lifetime. And Jesus is woken up, and he calms the storm. And then where do they land next? Right here. That's like the other side of the lake, and that's where they have landed. This area um, 
around Galilee is known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis. It's like two words that kind of define what it is. Deca is 10. And then polis is like a word for city. So 10 cities is the idea. There's like 10 kind of Hellenized, uh, which are, means like Greek or Gentile uh, cities, essentially. So you're in Israel proper, but, but it's really a very Gentile area. And you're like, well, how do you know that? I mean, besides just, you know, the, that this historically is the Decapolis area. Well, we learn later that there's uh, lots of pigs here. And you say, what, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us it's likely not a Jewish area because uh, they didn't eat pigs. They didn't farm pigs. And so this is an indication that this is most likely um, a Gentile region. Of course, this may be a small possibility that it's a very disobedient Jewish region, but more likely it's a Gentile region. I think that serves Luke's purpose as well because we mentioned some parallels in this calming of the storm with Jonah and Jesus, right? Remember that? And where was Jonah supposed to be going or where was he going on the boat? He was going to Gentiles to preach the gospel. And where's Jesus going? He's going to a Gentile region to reclaim one man (laughs) for the kingdom and then to set him loose to proclaim the message. And so we, we see him step out and it's this region of the Gerasenes. And the salvation is going to the Gentiles. Now, there's a there's a interesting little discussion about where this actually happened specifically. Matthew says the region of the Gadarenes. Luke and Mark say the region of the Gerasenes. That's not in conflict. That's just like different way of, of looking at things. Um, it might be like saying a metro area of a city versus like a particular like smaller area in that city. And Matthew writing to a more Jewish audience who may be more familiar with the geography speaks of the more specialized area, whereas Luke and Mark, more of a general audience, speaks of a more uh, general, generalized area that would be more familiar to, to an audience, maybe less familiar. Uh, it's actually a, a pretty fascinating thing. I mean, if you're a nerd. So if you want to come talk to me, I'll, I'll talk to you about it. But, <laughs> but we're not going to spend much time there. But just know that that's a thing people will talk about, you know, people throw out sometimes. Look at verse 27, though. Verse 27. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. We'll stop there. What's amazing about this is he steps off the boat and it says immediately, this guy just starts running after them. And I mean, you know, you're familiar with the story maybe, but you just gotta appreciate what's going on here. Uh, uh, This is a wild man. This is a terrifying man. This is a naked man. (laughs) This is a scary man and a tragic man. If you're the disciples, this is one incredible day of high blood pressure. I mean, you go from the scariest storm of your life, terrified out of your mind, only to be terrified even more because the creator is in your boat who just calmed the storm. Now you're not as afraid of the, of the, the storm, but the trauma of holiness is bearing down upon you. And so you, you think, okay, let's get to shore and get some relief. And you go to shore and Jesus steps off the boat and this naked man starts running after you. And he's all cut up. He's gashed. He's bleeding. He's screaming. And you're just thinking, what? did we sign up for? You know, this is crazy. You think if one of them looks over, it's like, here we go again. You know, it's like, what? <laughs> what is happening? We're just told that this man had demons. He had demons. He, it means he was possessed by more than one demon. What is a demon? 
What is a demon? Well, when it comes to these things, uh, there's two extremes, right? There is the extreme of too much interest, <laughs> and then the extreme of too much, or total ignorance, if you will. Just like, I don't know anything about this, eh, whatever, it doesn't matter. Or just like over uh, concern about these things when we're not told too much about it, right? Uh, it's almost like the door gets cracked a little bit at certain points in scripture, and you get to look into the unseen realm, and you just kind of like peek through the keyhole, and you're like, that's interesting, but I wish I could open the whole door and look in a little bit more, but you just don't, doors gets closed again. And so we get these little snapshots throughout scripture, you have to piece together what's happening. Well, what can we say basically about demons? Well, they have personhood, they have mind, emotions, and will, um, we, we see that demons are created angels. Um, they are created, and it says in Job that they really witness, the angels do, the, the, much of the creation of the world. They're not eternally existing. They're created at some point during the creation week, but enough to witness uh, much of the creation as well. Uh, but then there is a, a fall. If we piece together some different scriptures, there's an angelic fall along with Satan's fall that occurs sometime between the end of Genesis 2 and the beginning of Genesis 3 in the, that white space there that we're not told. But if we piece together, it's after the seven days of creation have been complete because everything is very good and sanctified at that point. But then the fall is recounted in chapter 3. Now, we don't know how much time occurred in between that. Likely not that much time. But... Satan rebels against God as well as a third of the angels. And so they are what we might refer to as demons or non-elect angels uh, because of their sin against God. And there's no plan of salvation for demons or angels. Uh, It says in Hebrews 2 that he gives help to the children of Abraham, right? It is the idea that uh, God is not, he doesn't have an alternate plan. He didn't become the God angel. He became the God man to redeem mankind. And so salvation is something the scriptures say angels long to look into because there is no plan of salvation for angels or demons, if you will, or Satan. Um, It is a good illustration for us to think about when we think what, what we actually do deserve. If you think like, what would God just be just to do? It would be to do what he did with the angels who sinned, and just to banish them from his presence, and ultimately to cast them into the lake of fire, and make no plan of salvation. But, but they are a living testimony that that is just God's justice and God's right to do that, and yet, for us, he has provided salvation, so the angels are fascinated with this plan of salvation, and are servants to those who will inherit it as well. Now, demons are, as well as angels, are spirit beings, and so this is explains a little bit. Well, I don't know how all these dynamics. Have maybe you've heard this like debate in some way back in church history, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, that's actually a, a, a debate which we laugh at. But they they they're going well. Angels are spirits, so they don't like take up space the way that we do, right? So you could potentially have a lot of demons possessing this one man, right? And so they're trying to think about that. And you're like, well, maybe there's better things to think about, and you're probably right. <laughs> but they're trying to wrestle through these realities and, you know, peek more into that, into that door, uh, what's behind it. So they are created beings. They are spirit beings. And yet they can take up residence in uh, a host, if you will, apparently animals as well, but a preference for human beings. And they can travel, right? They can travel. There's passages that speak about that, going through waterless places, and um, they're cast out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation, fully and finally. 
But they do the will of Satan. They do the will of Satan. We'll learn some more about them as we go along here, but there's some basics about what demons are, what they're about. Notice the desperate, though, and tragic condition of this man. Look at the middle of verse 27. This is for a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. Look at verse 29. There's a little parenthesis in the ESV here. It says, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would, he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Just, let's just summarize a few of the, the tragic qualities of this man's life, starting with shame, the shame of this man's life. He is, for a long time, without clothes. He, he's naked. He's shamed. He is in solitude and seclusion. He's not staying in a home, but he's among the tombs. And I don't think so much here of like a cemetery like we have, but more like a side of a cliff or a mountain with uh, um, the rock is hewed out to put bones into. And he's driven by this demon into the desert to be secluded from, from people. This is a very unclean man to a Jewish person in more ways than one. Notice the subjection of this man. He, he's dragged away, dragged away by this, this demon. And then he's in slavery. He's, he was bound in, there's more than one sense to this. He's bound in chains. So the city has this man living among them. He was a citizen of the city. And, and then at some point, we don't know the backstory completely, but he becomes more and more violent and more and more difficult to live with and wreaking terror upon the city such that they put him in prison, right? They chain him up. And yet he is some kind of supernatural strength because he breaks apart his bonds. We don't know how many times this happened, but he is chained up and he, he breaks, it, breaks it apart and flees, inflicting more damage. But there's another kind of slavery that this man has, and it's the slavery of the demons as they are controlling him in any ways. Mark tells us in his gospel, in Mark chapter 5, 5, that there was self-harm related to this. In Mark 5, verse 5, he says, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So he's self-harming. There's also a scary nature to this as he gives his name, Legion, which we'll look at in a minute. Now, it's just good to remember, get into the story a little bit. This man was not always like this. He has, was born a sinner, yes, but he, was never, he wasn't born demon-possessed like this. He, he had a mother and a father, and he lived in the city at one point until he was driven out. Man, this is truly a tragic story. The, the demons have taken everything from this man. He has nothing left, nothing left. And just notice how demons work. I think mean, we get some insight into this. He, he's, he's kept naked when he's unconverted and possessed. And yet when, when the, the contrast is when he's, the demons are driven out and he, is, he is, becomes a disciple of Jesus, he's then clothed and in his right mind. And so, he, he's then modest. And just, you could think about a lot of applications of this. I mean, of course, as Christians, we want to be modest. We don't want to draw unnecessary attention to ourselves. But just think of the more extreme example of the pornography industry and, and just the nakedness promoted there. And we could really truly say in this sense that it is demonic because this is what, this is how they work. They want to expose the nakedness. In Genesis chapter uh, two, it tells us the very end that 
Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. There was no shame. And, and yet, after they sinned, there's this, there's this shame involved. And so God covers them. They, they try to cover themselves, but then God slays an animal and covers them. And yet, the demonic minions would seek to uncover, to bring shame. And so you can, of course, see that. And uh, these people have parents and families who participate in this wicked industry, and, and they've been so enslaved to their sin and it is a shameful thing. This is how they work. Notice also how demons work with seclusion. I want to take someone away from community and from other people and just separate them out. This man is, is just has no community whatsoever. He can't. He's so dangerous. And, uh, and of course, this man, there was probably no opportunity in this Decapolis area for him to have any kind of good teaching, but it's just a, a good reminder to us that uh, the safest place we can be is surrounded by God's people in the church consistently where we're hearing the truth, we're being encouraged by the truth and that is a safe place for us. People are always in more in danger apart from the ministry of the local church. This is a tactic of demons to remove people from others, especially other Christians who will help them. Self-harm is another tactic of demons. Uh, they hate people. And so they, they seek to, and this is not just physically, like through cutting or things like that, self-harm, but mutilation, but, but through substances as well. It might fascinate you to learn that in the Bible, when it talks about sorcery in the New Testament, the term for sorcery is pharmakia, which is where we get, you know, or like pharmacy from. And, and the reason for that is, is in part likely because what was associated with sorcery was drugs, and to create hallucinations in the New Testament. And so there, sometimes it's through, through substances or through physical harm. But either way, this is the goal of demons, is to harm people in some way, to hurt them. And so you see the self-harm played out here with him as well. And then just an over-fascination with death. Uh, and you see that he's among the tombs and, the de and death here. And just he's, he, he, he's, there's an association there. We see that. God is the God of life, and, and so it would make sense that you would see just an over-fascination with death. If you want to see some of that, come visit my neighborhood <laughs> and, uh, and before it gets all taken down in the next week. <laughs> but we know that. We see that, right? In our culture, there's just this over-fascination with these things. Now, look at what happens with this man full of demons as he's in the presence of Jesus. Look at verse 28. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. He falls before Jesus. Now remember, uh, we saw a demon-possessed man in the synagogue before, and he was like, he was covert, right? He had this guy cool and collected. The guy was probably wearing a suit looking good, and, uh, and Jesus comes into his hometown, and he starts preaching, and this guy stands up, and he just starts screaming out, and he's just like losing control, and I, I kind of scared some of you guys, because I was like screaming out a little bit too, so uh, I was just a little more cautious of that this morning, and, uh, and, and, and Jesus, he, he recognizes who Jesus is. Here's a totally different scenario, right? This is not like cool and collected, well-dressed. This is like the total opposite, so the tactic sometimes changes, but he falls down, and that is the similarity there. He falls down, he cries out with a loud voice. I mean, what does this voice sound like? I mean, we just wonder these things. You know, this must have been scary. I don't know. The disciples got to hear. But what did he say, though? He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. 
And this phrase, what have you to do with me, is somewhat of a, a term that's, that's used in both the Old and, and the New Testament, sort of an idiom that show that the interests uh, of two parties are in conflict. They're, they're not together. And so, what do you have to do with me? And notice the title he uses for Jesus, Son of the Most High God. I mean, this phrase contains immense clarity about who Jesus is. Uh, you'll, you'll rarely hear this in the lips of just Jews around or Gentiles. This is what you commonly see among demons. You're the son of God. You are the holy one of God. And there's just such clarity that they have with Jesus. They have a, a really accurate Christology, doctrine of Christ. One person said it like this, infrared goggles that you see at night. And the demons have the ability to see the realities about Jesus that others may miss. And they, they recognize him. They see this. They know exactly who he is. After all, he created them. They know exactly who Jesus is. But notice how tragic this man's life is. That Jesus comes across the lake, though, just for him. Just for this guy. As we learn, as the story unfolds, Jesus will cast the demons out, save this man. But then Jesus just leaves. The people want him to leave. And so how amazing is this? How kind of the Lord. It's like you get off the, it's like you fly somewhere, you get off the plane, you get your passport stamped, and then you walk right back and get on the next flight and fly back home. I mean, like that's essentially what happens. Jesus lands on the shore. He encounters this man. He interacts with him, drives the demons out. The man is saved. He's sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed in his right mind. He wants to be a disciple. And... Then Jesus leaves. Like, this is incredible. He comes across, hey guys, we have to do a little detour. I gotta save this guy. And then we're gonna leave. I mean, like, this is just incredible that though this man's life is so tragic, look at Jesus' kindness and his grace to deliver this man in such, he's been, he's been written off by everybody. We'd have all written this man off. But Christ comes to him. There is no case too hopeless for Christ. I hope we realize that. No case too hopeless for Christ to change and for his power to invade and transform. This man's story is for us to recognize the power and authority of Jesus over the most powerful evil in the world. Yet it also reminds us that every sinner separated from Christ has a tragic story. And consider what condition a person is in before Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is our desperate, hopeless condition. Tragic. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 13, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. But notice the condition we were in, the tragic condition. We were in the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. First John chapter 5, first John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Or look at 2 Timothy, or listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 
Verse 24 to 26, but especially verse 26. Paul is giving instruction and he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may, listen to the language here, in, 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 in comparison to our text, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That is a great description of this man's life, but also a description of everyone before Christ, that they were not in their right senses. And so we need to pray, Lord, bring them to their right sense and to, that they might escape from the snare of the devil, the trap. And they're in slavery, having been captured by him to do his will. And so that's this man's story. It is a tragic story, but it is all of our stories before Christ. When you tell your testimony, you say, you know, I was, I was enslaved to my sin. I was held captive. I was deceived. I have been captured to do the will of darkness and of Satan, and I was not in my right mind. But God brought me to my senses to see reality as it is through the word of God, through the truth. He can do that in your life as well. You know, we think of hostages that are, get held by terrorists. It's a common, that's a uh, relevant thing right now that we think about and that the, ter- the, the, the fear that that would bring, the, how tragic that is. And yet every sinner is held captive by Satan. And, and worse yet, it is a willful slavery. It is a both and. It is a satanic slavery, but also a willful slavery in captivity to our sin. So Satan and demons, by extension, seek to steal and kill and destroy a person's life. And yet Christ has come that you might have abundant life. And so here's a tragic man, but one who becomes a transformed man. So we tell people, my life was one that was just dominated by sin. It was just desperate, tragic in many ways. And yet God moved in my life. And and all of us will have differences when it comes to how we explain this part, but also exact parallelism at the same time. There'll be differences like when when I ask people like, how did the Lord bring you to himself? And maybe your story is, oh, someone talked to me or I read a book or, you know, it it took time for me to really think through this, hearing sermon after sermon, then things just got clearer and clearer. And then I realized, yeah, I really, I really do need to repent. Or I think I have repented. I think I really have. And Maybe I should get baptized. I don't think I was baptized before, you know, or I was baptized before, but I, don't, I wasn't really a believer or whatever. You start to think through these things. And so there's those aspects, but everyone's story is the same in that we've all been, come to see who Christ is. We've come to see our sin for what it is. And we've come to trust in Christ alone for our only hope and, and our salvation. And so that's the same thing that we all have. But, you know, the, the circumstances around that are different. But here's a transformed man. His story is a little different, I can imagine, than yours. (laughs) I mean, sometimes people, you know, you get to like extreme testimonies. This is an extreme testimony. Look at verse 30. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. And then Luke gives his editorial comment, for many demons had entered him. Jesus asked him his name, and the response might give you a little chill. Legion, a legion during the time of Augustus was around 6,000 soldiers. Now, we don't know, we don't have to be precise here. It could be less than that at times, but we learn from Mark 5.13 that there were 2,000 pigs that were there. 
So I think we're safe in assuming that this man is possessed by thousands of demons. This is just hard to wrap your mind around. I mean, one demon, we, we've seen one man just oppressed. We'll see, you know, others in the Gospels who are uh, demonically possessed and what they're doing to them. And yet here we see this man is full of demons. This is a battle. This is a battle. This is one versus thousands. Jesus versus thousands of demons. And yet look at verse 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Like one punch, knockout. <laughs> he doesn't even throw a punch. And, and you see this, and they are just terrified. They're terrified at Jesus' presence. And here's something you don't see. Demons praying to Jesus. Right? Not praying, of course, in what we might think of as a godly prayer, but a pleading, a begging, seeking something from Jesus. And this is why I called the sermon when demons pray and pigs fly, and we might add to that, and sinners are saved. But here they are, they're begging Jesus. They're, they're pleading with him. Now, they're not pleading in the sense of like, do this for us. They are pleading as, this is a word that's used of someone who's in authority, and they are asking for a request. This would be like coming to a king and saying, your majesty, would you, would you do this for me? And that is their posture there's terror of these demons at the presence of Jesus. And ought this not to give us comfort that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world? Like a child who wants their parent to go into a dark room with them. Though they've been in that room before, they know it's architecture, they want presence with them as they go in. And here the disciples have Jesus with them as they are in this dark, dark region. Darrell Davis writes this, it's as if as soon as Jesus comes, there is an invincible, or an invisible compulsion that propels these denizens of darkness to show submission to the sovereign they so intensely despise and to confess the truth of his supremacy. This leaves us in no doubt about how the so-called cosmic conflict will play out. The terror of the demons is the hope of the church. <laughs> the terror of the demons is the hope of the church. And so we have great comfort that though this world with devils filled <laughs> threatened to undo us, you know, as we sung in our uh, hymn of Mighty Fortress, uh, we will not fear. God has willed his triumph to, to um, triumph through us, his truth to triumph through us. And so we, we see them trembling before him. What is it that they want? Well, they want to be cast into the abyss or they don't want to be cast in the abyss. They're, they're afraid that that's what's going to They begged him not to command him to depart into the abyss. What, what is the abyss? Well, it's used in Romans 10, 7. It's used seven times in Revelation. There's some other parallels that don't use the word but seem to be connected to it. Um, I'll just point out two of these to you. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2, verse 24. Or sorry, verse 4. 2 Peter 2, 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, it's actually a unique word for hell, it's a Tartarus, it's not the normal word, into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then Jude says something very similar in Jude um, chapter 
chapter one, of course, Judah's one chapter. Verse six, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so these demons not only have a right and accurate view of Christ, but they have a right and accurate view of last things, what we call eschatology. They're accurate on these things. They know that this is what is coming. They know that there is this, this time of judgment where the demonic world will be judged and cast into this place of, uh, of confinement. And yet, they are begging Jesus not to bring them there. They think maybe it's now. They're wrong on the timing, but not on the reality of this. And it reminds us that hell is not Satan's house or the demon's house. It, like their dorm room that they retreat back to and then they go and do their work. It is where the demons will be cast in the end and, and Satan. And Satan and demons are at work in the world. One day they will be cast into the final hell. They want the ability to continue to roam about and do their, their work. Now there's an interesting passage we'll get to in Luke chapter 11. I just wanna point you to it for a moment here. Luke chapter 11, verse 24, it says, when the unclean spirit, it's another term for a demon, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. <laughs> Yikes. We'll get there. Hang on. <laughs> uh, there's a preview of coming attractions. But, but you see that it's not enough to just, you know, for a demon to be cast out and for someone to like clean up their life a little bit. If they're not actually saved, then it's just like you just cleaned up your life and the, all these demons return back again or they could return back is the, is the, seems to be the, the basic point of what he's getting at. And so they're saying something like this, like, okay, just, just send us out of this man, but don't send us to the abyss, right? There's options. They're pleading for mercy from Jesus when they've shown no mercy whatsoever to this man. And what's incredible is that Jesus grants them their request to be not cast into the abyss yet, but to be cast out. In other words, the time is not yet. He will defeat all evil in a fully and final way, but that time is not yet. And so look at verse 32 and 33. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let, him, let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Now, imagine the camera angle here. Okay, so now the camera angle switches up the hill to the herdsmen of these pigs. And so the herdsmen have watched this scene play out, and no doubt they know who this man is. They've been terrorized by him, and so, but they're a safe distance away. And so they see a boat, and it hits the shore, and a man steps out on the boat, and there's other men with him in the boat, and they start to get off the boat, and then they see the guy they know, naked, gashed up, bleeding, running, sprinting towards down the hill to Jesus and, or he doesn't know it's Jesus, but they see him running down. They're like, oh boy, 
Oh, man. And they watch, and they see, and they notice something they've never seen before. Whereas this man would have cost people. He gets to Jesus, and he falls right down at his feet. And they're going, whoa, what is going on here? And they start watching this interchange. They can't hear anything. They can just watch body language, maybe. And there's clearly a conversation happening. And they're just in rapt attention, but they're far away. And then all of a sudden they see the man, the demon-possessed man, turn around and he points at them up the hill. And they go, one guy looks at the other, why is he pointing at us? And then all of a sudden their, their pigs just start, rah, rah, and they just start squealing out and screaming. They're 2,000 pigs and they just start sprinting for the water. That is their perspective of this whole event. Incredible. And so this would have been a loud event. This would have been pandemonium as they just have never seen anything like this. And these pigs just stampede for the cliff or for down the steep slope into the water. You could say that these pigs became deviled ham. <laughs> they did a swine dive. You know, it allowed everyone to witness the swine flu as they jumped into the Bay of Pigs. It was all hogwash. <laughs> you can call me the Punisher. <laughs> all right, enough of that. <laughs> I had to get those out, just like Jesus got the demons out. <laughs> there's a show on TV called, I found out there's a show called Dr. Pimple Popper. I know, just the name itself. People apparently like to watch this doctor uh, cut people open and push all this pus and grossness out of people, I know. And, you know, it can be surprising how much there is in there. <laughs> and that's what you realize about this man. This man, how in the world did so many demons fit inside this man? And I think, in part, Jesus cast the demons out into these pigs to show demonstrably how oppressed this man had been, that all of these pigs are drowned as a result, as these demons kill them. And we have many questions the text does not answer for us. But here's the focus. It is on deliverance and transformation. Deliverance and transformation. And it's evident by these pigs running away that this man was severely enslaved to demons. And remember, it was not Jesus who killed these pigs with these demons. People, you know, it's so funny, you know, certain commentators, whatever, they, they get upset that these pigs, what about the pigs? You know, what about the pigs? Huh? Pigs got killed. I mean, this is a misplaced priority. Um, <laughs> remember what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 6? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows, we might say, and many swine. Now, sometimes it costs a lot to bring redemption. One writer said, the man's welfare is more important than that of the beasts. Our world has this totally mixed up, far greater concern for species that are in, at risk and, and really no concern for the inhabitants in the womb. I mean, we just see our, our culture just gets so mixed up on these things. Another writer says, the removal of evil is always costly. The loss of the swine graphically pictures the cost of purging evil, as well another death on the cross. 
And, and this, I mean, we don't know how much this was. It was, I don't know, you could guesstimate, it's hard to know for sure how, mu- how much loss of money this was. Two million maybe in pigs. That's a lot of bacon. <laughs> that was my last one, I promise. <laughs> you all have been great. <laughs> uh, and, and, but this is incredible. And yet we see just how important it is that this man would be delivered. Look then at verses 34 to 37. It says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city, told it in the city and in the country. And people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. The word gets out about the pigs. They, they rush to see it for themselves from the community. And when they arrive, they see this man that has been a terror to their community. And yet, notice the description of him. He is sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I mean, here's a true transformation. He's a different person. He really has a different personality now. (laughs) One like he's never had. It makes us ask, I mean, it makes me ask, have you experience the transforming power of the gospel. You know, we talk a little bit about different personalities. I mean, that's what happens when you get saved, right? People can tell. Man, you're a different person. You got different desires. You're just different. Where did you go? (laughs) What happened? And it's, I'm a new person. I have a new identity. There's a sense of which there is a change in person. Personality is changeable. And that is what sanctification is all about, that we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ. This is what happens when a person's transformed. They sit at the feet of Jesus to hear his word. And there's both an internal and an external transformation. Externally, it's evident that he's been transformed. He's clothed. Whereas before he was naked, internally, there's evident transformation. He's in his right mind. One commentator said this, just helpfully, when Jesus works in our life, we become truly sane and rational. For the first time in our lives, we are truly in our right mind about life. We get reality. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And we we see that. We affirm that. Now, you'd think that the response to the city would be praise. They would have like a national holiday that this is the day when our city was set free from this demonic uh, oppression by this man. This this wild man is, is changed completely. An upstanding citizen. But what is the response? Instead, they, they're afraid. Here's the trauma of holiness again. There's a kind of tra- transformation that is terrifying to people. I don't know if you noticed this before. It doesn't always happen, but there are times when there is some family member and they are really a difficulty for their family, extended and, 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 and close family, and they get saved. God saves them. He transforms them. And whatever their issues were, they begin to change. And they are just, I mean, they want to be at church every Sunday. They want to be in the Word. They're reading the Bible. They want to talk about the Bible. They're praying. They're making different decisions. They talk differently. They won't do the same things. They, they are doing other things that they didn't do. And those around them are getting a little uncomfortable. It's like their family was more comfortable when they were living this wanton life that caused them heartache and pain. But now that their life is, is really upstanding and is all about Christ, it makes them a little uncomfortable to be around them. I think this is actually really relevant for our context where there are so many people who would name the name of Christ. They would make a profession of faith in Christ, but they don't actually possess Christ. And so for you and I to just live out the normal Christian life of what Christians do 
talking about our faith, uh, reading the Bible, you know, loving the church, I mean, just doing these things and, and letting our faith manifest itself in everyday life, like what a normal believer does, what it will do is for those who, who say they know Christ but don't really know him, they'll start to get a little uncomfortable. They want to change the subject. They want to talk about something that's a little bit more just like common uh, and they'll just move it around. And that's a good indication to you that they may be a p- professor but not a possessor of Christ. And so, and it's good to just know that. And, because, and here's the thing. If you were to even ask someone who you were unsure if they were really a Christian, you would say, do you really know Christ? I don't know, there's a a few things I just wonder, like where are you at with Christ? If you just ask that question, where are you at with Christ? Do you think you really know him? Has he really transformed your life? A real Christian who's asked that question would go, I really think I I have. Uh, You know, and and I'm struggling or whatever. They They would not be upset at you for asking them about Christ or to talk about Christ. They might be like shaken up a little bit, like, oh man, maybe I'm not as mature as I thought I was. But the person who's not really a Christian and gets asked about their faith in Christ, they might get offended and upset and, well, how dare you? And they don't want to talk about it. Why? Why would you not want to talk about it? Only if you really don't know Christ and it's just in name only. And so this is just an encouragement for us to never feel, never feel afraid to talk to someone about where they're at with Christ. If, even if they claim to be a Christian, but there's just something that's a disconnect in their life. We do that in a loving way. We do that patiently. We do that because we con- are concerned about them. But we shouldn't be afraid of doing that because real transformation, a real conversion brings real transformation. And so we, we certainly see that in this man's life. In verse 36, it, ESV says that he was healed when they saw that he was healed, but it's really the word for saved. He was saved. He, was, he became a disciple. But these people are afraid at this transformation. And one person said, there's a fear that may draw you to Jesus and there's a fear that may drive you from Jesus. Seeing the transformation. He transforms from the inside out. We don't start with the outside cleaning up, but it starts from the inside where there's a transformed heart and then there's a concern in our lives to, to see things outside change. Addictions, habits, beliefs, pains, transformed. It's sad when some in the... Some, some Christians want to say that certain sins are, you know, it's just, these are, it's unrealistic to call people to live the Christian life in faithfulness uh, because of certain sins, struggles that they might have. That, that is just denying the, really the power of the gospel, that the gospel really does transform, uh, that the gospel has the power to come into a life, and no, it is not always an easy transformation. Sin, fighting sin is difficult, it is hard. But if you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. The battle is not easy, but it is necessary and it is empowered by the work of God. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us in the kingdom of his beloved son. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17, there's no, uh, anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And so the real gospel brings real transformation. Look at verse 37. It says, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, and they were seized with great fear, so they got into the boat and returned. This one person said it. This is a sobering comment. They asked him to leave the region, and 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 he says, And Jesus complies, which should grip us with greater fear, that Jesus would, would leave them. 
And yet, in a way, he doesn't leave them without a witness to himself because he leaves this man. But how sad a condition. MacArthur says, what a sad comment on man's fallen and unregenerate state it is that man should feel more at home with demons than with the Christ who has the power to cast out demons. And why would someone fear Christ like this? Well, John, 1, or John 3, 19 and following says that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness. And they feared the light lest their deeds would be exposed. And so th- th- there's, a, there's a trauma of holiness. They don't want their life to change. And yet, yes, Jesus commands that you change. Having saved you, he commands that your life be different as a disciple. But doesn't he have the authority to do that? Doesn't he have the right to call you to that? And of course he does. And so he, he exercises authority in telling this man what he ought to do now. And here we see what is true of all of us, that we go from a tragic figure to a transformed person to a testifying disciple. Verse 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is really, this is a, a story full of surprises. This man wants to go with Jesus. He, want, he sees Jesus getting on the boat. He wants to step on the boat as well. And just think about this. The demons beg Jesus to cast them out and he does it. The people tell Jesus to leave and he does it. The man says, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. <laughs> the one person you would think he would grant the request and he doesn't. J.C. Ryle says, that lesson is our own utter ignorance of what position is good for us in this world and the necessity of submitting our own wills to the will of Christ. The place that we wish to fill is not always the place that is best for us. The line of life that we want to take up is not always that which Christ sees to be most, the most benefit of our souls. So he says, no, you need to stay. And he's gonna be an ambassador to the Gentiles. A mini great commission he's given. And he was to declare what God had done for him. This word declare is not just like to say what happened like uh, the, the people in the city did, but to elaborate on this and explain the details and how Christ can transform. He moves from a tragic man to a transformed man to a testifying man. What would he say to people? Well, you'd give them the gospel. You'd tell about God who was the creator and who uh, he had been estranged from because of his sin and how the demons who hated him had had just made his life a living hell and then how one day he met Christ and Christ cast the demons out and then he trusted in Christ to save him from his sins and he was free he was transformed he loved Christ he wanted to tell others about Christ and he would he would do that he would say you too can be freed from the tragic life of sin that you're enslaved to and know Christ if you'll trust in him as well. It's a simple message. This takes away an excuse sometimes we have when we think about talking to others about Christ. We think, oh, I just don't know enough yet. I just haven't finished Calvin's Institutes. I can't, I can't talk. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and here's a guy who has a couple hours maybe with Jesus, you know, discipleship intensive course, and, uh, and then he goes and talks to people about Christ. I mean, this is incredible. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't take an evangelism class. Absolutely, you should. But just telling your story about how God has changed your life and how he can change others, if you have been saved, then you have enough to be able to tell someone else how they can be saved, even if it's the most basic 
And of course, people are going to say, what about this? And you're going to go, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But you need to repent and trust in Christ too. <laughs> and that's what God uses. And so we too become evangelists. We too become those who testify. I mean, here's one of the most immature Christians. And here he is already telling others. You know, sometimes we get older in the faith and we, we kind of stop. We, we kind of, most of the people in our lives know the Lord and it's who we hang out with. But it's good to press ourselves to go, all right, I need to be more intentional. I need to pray for this person for opportunity and, and boldness when it comes to, to just bring up spiritual things or people who, who are questioning about and have those conversations with them. Jesus says, tell them what, what God has done for you. And this man says what Jesus did for him. You catch it? He understands who Jesus is. Jesus is God. He understands the one who could do this is the one who made all things, rules over the demons. You can have a right view of who Christ is and yet not be saved. Here's a fascinating detail we probably shouldn't press too much into, but in Matthew's gospel, he says there were two demon-possessed men who came to Jesus. Mark and Luke say there was one. Now, that's not in contradiction. They, they, they don't say it's only one, but their focus is just on this one guy. And you go, why is that? And, you know, we don't really know. They didn't tell us all the way. Maybe this is just the prominent guy that, who they focus upon. Uh, one... One writer, though, Richard Caldwell, he, he offered a, a suggestion that's plausible, at least, that maybe Luke and Mark only emphasize one because only one believed. Because maybe both of these men had demons cast out of them, and one of them actually trusted in Christ and was saved and testified, and the other one, the demons went out, and they gathered back up, and they came back into this man at some point later, like Luke 12 talks about. Or think about the lepers. Ten lepers are cleansed, and one comes back. And, and, and gives thanks to Jesus. There's nine who just go on their way. Maybe that was the case here as well. It, doesn't, it means that Jesus can do a, a great work and, <laughs> in their life like this, and yet they not acknowledge him as Lord. That might be the case. We don't know that. But it certainly is a danger for us that we could have a right Christology. We could even experience great blessings that being close to Christ and his church brings, and yet truly not know him for ourselves. And so it is imperative that we say, and be sure that we do know the Lord and we have trusted in him. Here's a man who had a tra tragic life in bondage to sin and Satan, but he became a transformed man by the power and grace of Jesus. And from then on, he was a transformed man who was testifying to Christ. Is that the outline of your story as well? And if so, are you still testifying to the reality of what God, what Jesus has done in your life so that others can experience that as well? May it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our, our passage here, for this study, for this man who is a real man who we will meet in glory. And no doubt he will still be singing your praises like we will for how you transformed our lives the same way through faith in Christ. And yet, different stories that all bring color to the way you've saved us from our different walks of life and different circumstances. And yet all redounding to your glory and praise we thank you that you're so merciful to us, that you have brought us from, from such a tragic life of sin to being transformed and in the process of being transformed even, and then that we testify to what you have done in our lives, giving you all glory. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's respond in song, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name.